From FL1 News, this is Inside the FLX. I'm Josh Durso. Today's episode is brought to you by the Fox Family Dealerships in Auburn, New York. They're ready to serve you. Visit foxdealerships.com to learn more. This hour, we are talking about a book, Mike Cotillo's brand new book, uh, with the man himself. It's called George Washing Machine Portables in Submarine Races, My Italian American Life, and it's available now on Amazon. Uh, he also serves as executive editor of the Finger Lake Times. Uh, Mike, thanks a lot for being here. Oh, thank you. Good to see you, Josh. Um, so, f- first of all, that that book, um, the title, where where did that come from? Where did that start? <laughs> That's funny. It's actually the first question I usually get, and I guess that would be a first question because it's right on the cover. Uh, those are all words or phrases. The, the star of the book is my dad, who was born in Italy, uh, came here in 58 when he married my mom, so he's been here for 60 years. Uh, all of those phrases and words are words that he either misused or uh, got wrong in, as he was learning English because he knew no English when he got here. Mm-hmm. So uh, the George washing machine, that's a, that's a famous one in the, in the family. It was um, when Dad was taking some classes before he took his citizenship test, and it was to learn some American histories, to learn a little bit of culture, and uh, the way he tells it, the professor or teacher, whoever it was, asked the class, who is, was the first president of the United States? And Dad was feeling kind of full of himself at that point, was learning a little bit of English, shot his arm up there. When the teacher called on him, he proudly said, George washing machine. <laughs> and the class laughed. And Actually, you know, I always ask him, did the class really laugh or did they not understand either? And he said, oh, a few of them laughed and the professor laughed. So that's where George Washing Machine comes from. Um, portable, all this is, is explained in the book, too, because obviously with a crazy uh, title like that, you, you do have to let people know where you're coming from. Portables was, uh, I had a brand new Mustang convertible a few years ago that I drove into his driveway to show him, and he was all excited and very proud of me for driving this sparkly new car. And he said, holy cow, that's a portable. That's just him (laughs) getting some of the words wrong. This was just a few years ago. So here's a guy who's been here for 60 years and still uh, messes up the language a little bit, but all in a good good vein. We tease him about it, and he he teases himself about it. And then uh, submarine races... uh, Probably a lot of your younger viewers, and maybe even yourself, Josh, don't know that what that phrase refers to. Uh, but it goes back to like the American graffiti day. As I was growing up, that was a, a term that was used when people were making out, you know, on the side of the road, or usually near a body of water. But they would say, "Oh, they're watching the submarine races tonight." <laughs> so that just happened to be Dad was giving a bunch of us a ride home from I think a Syracuse Chiefs game. And uh, we're driving along Onondaga Parkway in Syracuse, and somebody in the car said, it was late at night, it was dark, and there were a few cars parked, it must be they're watching the submarine races tonight. Now, usually my dad responds to everything quickly, sometimes wrong, inaccurately or whatever, but this time he kept quiet. And I knew he was processing that one, but it just didn't compute. So uh, after a few minutes, like the long, dramatic pause as he's driving, he turned around and said, how in the hell do they get submarines in that lake? <laughs> so, again, uh, just cute little anecdotes about him learning this crazy English language. <laughs> and, and obviously built around, I'm assuming, uh, total life experiences, things you've, you've lived through throughout your whole life. Um, walk us through a little bit about like how you went about actually choosing um, what to include or what not to include um, when <laughs> yeah, you're digging yeah. back. 
Good question. That, that's funny. I think the book is like 260 pages, <laughs> and uh, one of my sisters read it and said, when's the sequel coming out? Like, yeah. you don't have everything in there, you yeah. know? Um, she liked what I had in there, but she was. Uh, there's more stories, too. Um, you know, I don't know. I think the, the stories in that book are probably the ones that we and the family go over more often than not. Dad still tells a lot of the stories on himself, and uh, I did have one friend who read it and said, uh, man, you must keep a journal to to be able to go into detail on all these stories. And I said, no, not really. I mean, I have take, I've kept journals at times over the years, but it's just that these stories are so uh, time-worn. The family knows them. Dad repeats them that uh, I just know the details intrinsically, I guess. So, yeah, there's, there's more uh, material, so I don't know about a sequel, but uh, we'll see what happens. If you're talking about a sequel, I have to ask, how long did it take to actually write this book? Well, it's, it's a good question because it took about a year. Um, the thing is that a lot of the stories were already, I had already written in one form or another. Some have been in the Finger Lakes Times in some form or another. I also write for a, a State Sons of Italy newsletter. I write a column there. So again, um, it was a lot of it was just scrubbing those up a little bit, uh, lengthening them a little bit, sometimes combining a couple. Uh, and, and some chapters are totally fresh, freshly written. But um, my publisher, the publisher that I worked with, a small outfit out of New York City in Florida called Idea Press, um, never put any pressure on me, never gave me a deadline, didn't say I need Chapter 12 by Tuesday. You know, I imagine if you're Stephen King or if you're somebody like that, your publisher says, I, got, you know, I need this book by November 12th and you know, we have to be done with it. But, you know, um, he, he knew, my editor knew that I had a real job to work on as well. So there were weeks sometimes where I barely touched anything with the book. And then there were other weeks when I did a lot of writing, rewriting, proofing, and mm-hmm. things like that. So it, it took a year. It was about last November when I signed the contract to, to do this book. And uh, the end of September is when it came out. So. Did, it, did it feel like a second job at any point while you were going through that process given that you know you're also running a running a newspaper on <laughs> on top of that um no I, I can't say that it did probably because my publisher was so relaxed about things and if i couldn't get to things and if i was busy at work uh, for a stretch he understood so actually what it did i think it was i was able to it was like some enjoyment. It was something that I got to do on the side, kind of get my mind off of work and the news gathering business that we're so heavily in um, all the time. So this was just kind of a little bit of a respite, a little bit of a, okay. There was, as uh, somebody said, one of my sisters said, I think, uh, probably a lot of late night oil being burned and a lot of early morning uh, mm-hmm. hours working on the book. And there was. My wife will tell you that. So, uh, But, again, it, it was enjoyable. It was uh you know, so I wanted to I wanted to write this book while Dad was still with us, which he mm-hmm. is. He's 88 years old, uh, living with us in Geneva, and uh, you know he's happy and proud. If anything, this started as uh, you know, let's get some of these stories down so we don't forget them in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was hoping that other folks would, uh, especially with the Italian American community that we have in this area, uh, the stories would res- resonate with those folks too. So, yeah, no, it was it was fun more than a chore, you know. <laughs> What has uh, what has his reaction, or what was his reaction to it when he first um, when he saw the finished product? I saw you you po- I think you posted anecdotally when it first uh, was was published a picture of the cover. 
yeah. he had an interesting reaction to that part of it. But what was his reaction, <laughs> sort of, to the, the the whole of the book and, and what you uh, what you packed into it? Well, at the very beginning, when I first told him I was working on it, and I told him, Dad, a lot of the stories are going to be your stories, and they're going to be about you. In his broken English, he was like, <laughs> "Why do you want to write about me?" I don't think you need to write about me. I said, well, Dad, because they're good, funny stories and people will relate to them. And I don't think he ever quite understood that it was going to be a real book. You know, he thought he's seen my newspaper columns over the right, year, yeah. years. He's seen the uh, other magazines that I've written for and stuff. But when the book was delivered to the house, I mean, his first reaction was, holy cow, that is, that's a real book right there. <laughs> I said, yeah, no kidding, Dad. So the uh, the photo on the cover is of him at a soccer game in Germany, a World Cup game that we went to in 2006. Uh, Germany was playing Italy in Dortmund. And it's just a photo that I took, you know, that you do when you're on vacation. Okay. And I um, I sent a bunch of photos off to the publisher, not knowing which ones they would use you know they're the professionals as far as I'm concerned with that yeah. kind of stuff and um, that was the one that they chose to use and when I saw it I said that's perfect you, you nailed it and then of course then dad was like why is there a picture of me on the cover it's your book and I said again don't worry about it dad it's about you <laughs> so it's that kind of thing what was the biggest challenge um, you experienced while you're sitting down and writing this book? Obviously, you, you said you, you were able to take a little bit of a passive approach to it at different times, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you still wrote a book. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. what, what's the biggest challenge, especially as it relates to sort of, um, you talked a little bit about, obviously, you've written plenty of columns, mm -hmm. you've written plenty of stories in newspapers, but writing a book, whole different ball of wax. So walk us through what some of the challenges were that you uh, personally experienced in the process. Well, yeah, it is a whole ball, a different ball of wax. I mean, I, I won't, this is the only book I've ever written, so I don't know what others would say, but um, it, it's a lot different than news writing. News writing, you do your reporting. You, you hope that the stories that you write are somewhat entertaining, but a lot of times they're just heavy news stories, so the entertainment value is not there. You've got to kind of hope that uh, a book like this will connect with folks again for enjoyment you know that they want to read it before they go to sleep at night or something like that so as a journalist you're writing you know more I don't know if they're more connected but they're direct stories about the news in this case you can go off on some tangents and be a little bit more colorful so you have to I had to put on a different hat anyways while I was writing this probably one of the reasons why I enjoyed it because it did allow me to step away from that the news business a little bit um, and then you know again you wanted to connect with people so you want to talk about some human types of stories uh, whether they're humorous or uh, heartfelt a little bit you know a little bit different journalism the news story is a little bit more straight laced as you know and um, this has to be something that uh, connects to people's hearts, I guess. So that's the that's the difference. And when I preparing for this, I talked to a couple of my friends who who wrote books or have written books in the past, and, and they said uh, almost universally, the hardest part is is the planning phase, where mm -hmm. you're actually sitting down, not writing the the stories that are going to be inside of it, or the the, the content of the book rather, but yeah. actually the planning aspect. Um, how much time did you take on the planning aspect, and how did you sort of, as you say, whittle down the list of what yeah. you could have written about to what you were actually going to write about? A lot of time was on the planning process. Uh, I can't break it down for you exactly, but yeah, um, we probably reorganized and rearranged between myself and my publisher four or five times. And 
again, not having been through this before, and I don't know how it works with other folks, I didn't have a completed manuscript when I got in touch with them. I just had some of these columns. And I said, you know, I wrote them in a, like a searching letter, I guess, uh, you know, just telling a little bit about myself. And I said, here's a few of my columns, and this is what I've done over the years. And, of course, obviously in this case you're looking at for the Italian-American experience. But um, So I sent him some, and I said, uh, I don't know what you think about these, but I've got enough that we could, I could make a book out of this, again, not having a completed manuscript. So I sent him three or four, and he, uh, Tiziano Dosena was the man who I worked with down in New York City. He wrote back and said, if you could send me a few more, uh, I'm starting to get a picture of uh, your writing style and what you're, what you're going about here. So I did. I sent him three or four more, and he goes, I think we've got something here. If you can you know, come up with enough chapters to, to make a book. And actually, when I first completed it, um, it was probably half the size of what I what I ended up with because I just didn't know how long things were in a, in a book form. And Tiziano uh, emailed me and said, uh, okay, that's pretty good for about half a book. You got some more stuff you could send me? I said, yeah, I could send you some more stuff. So it was kind of going back and forth and working with him, and he, and he was great through this whole process and uh, getting more out of me, I guess, just like I like to get more out of reporters at times. Uh, it was the shoe was on the other foot in this case. So, but, yeah, the planning process was, was a big thing. Once you had that down and we kind of had a structure of where we were going with the, with the different uh, sections of the book, it was easier to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I want to shift gears a little bit because obviously I got you here. I want to talk about journalism because it's what we both do for a living. Sure. Um, What is – this question keeps getting tossed around a lot, especially when we have different – when we do different podcasts in this room. Um, What is the health of journalism or news? When you see that question, how do you you answer that? And then what is Is, is, it? Are we in a place where we can even – grade it like that or it, should we be getting away from that and just focusing on the product side wow there's a lot of there's a lot of tentacles to that one um when you say the health of news first of all i don't know that i've seen it phrased that way very often what is the health of news are you talking about news itself or the news gathering process news, news at its core because people seem to be when we have these conversations about, you know, what's good journalism, what's bad journalism, what isn't journalism, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times people tend to take it right right back to the the core of, well, this means journalism or news, the news product that we see typically mm-hmm. um, is unhealthy or, or flawed in some way. Mm-hmm. Is is that the right way to sort of dive into that conversation, or do, do people tend to need to take a little step back? Uh, yeah. Um I think I would say that they do need to take a little step back. I do think that people are as interested in the news and consume it almost voraciously these days more than in the past. Uh, I'm The biggest concern I have is where people get the, their news from because there are so many different sources these days. Um, as far, you know, I there's definitely a place for solid journalism. I think there will be a place for solid journalism for decades to come. Now, whether that means newspapers, whether that means websites, whether that means podcasts and digital, um, I don't know at this point. Uh, It's just that I think that people, especially that people that love news uh, and, and want to be informed, 
they need to get it from someplace that they can trust, that they know that it's been vetted as well as possible. I mean, obviously, a lot of places are cutting back on, on personnel these days. That's just a monetary thing. But again, that it's vetted as, as well as it possibly can be. Because you and I both know, um, if you're a right-leaning conservative, you can find websites and newspapers and periodicals that will fall in line with the way you think. If you're a left-leaner, you can find the same types of things that will fall in line with the way you think. I don't think that's the best way to consume news. I think better off with, with somebody that's right in the middle or maybe just a little right-leaning or a little left-leaning leaning, and that, that vets the stuff. It's accurate. You can trust it. And that's the news that you should, you know, in my opinion, uh, that's the news that you should trust and read and follow. Yeah. Do, does it concern you at all that potentially you have organizations getting uh, mischaracterized in the process of being, you know, whether it's people who assume that an organization leads right or left? Yeah. Um, it, it, does that have a potential impact that could be negative? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, there's no doubt about it. And we... You know, we've seen. I just I got a letter to the editor today about our opinion section on Sunday, this past Sunday, saying how blatantly conservative and right leaning it was, uh, because you had this columnist, you had these cartoons, you had this, and you had that. That's one of the few times in recent years that we've been con considered blatantly conservative, because as you know, most newspapers are considered to be liberal. Um, I've had. In the same day, one time, literally five minutes apart, I had a reader call me to say, you're too liberal, I'm canceling my subscription. And then I had another one call me back, call me five minutes later and said, you're too conservative, I'm canceling my subscription. So as a newspaper editor, I said, yeah, that's perfect. We're, we're working on both sides of it. We're right down the middle there. Yeah. These guys are upset and these guys are But then I go, wait a minute, we just lost two subscribers. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, obviously you've got to... You got to walk the line, and I, to me, especially with a small community newspaper like ours, you know, we're not a big metropolitan paper. We don't get heavily involved in opinion writing with our local reporters or with our local editors. A lot of our opinion stuff is syndicated, or we have specialty columnists that that do give their opinion. Um, we reporting the news. We keep our biases out of it as much as we can. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we're all human beings, and you're coming at something with a little bit of a bias just because of who you are. But uh, we try to be as straight-laced and down the middle as we can be. Um, and that's, you know, I think most community newspapers, I think, um, would tell you that, you know. And, and obviously about the last, probably the last week or week and a half, um, there's been plenty of discussion uh, about the the Northwestern Daily, the, the oh, controversy boy. around yeah around that 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 expression um, sort of says it all. But <laughs> one of the one of the things that sort of impressed me through this this whole uh, issue is sort of how the whole journalism community has rallied around um, the, the central idea that journalism shouldn't be compromised, or the standards of journalism shouldn't be compromised because of any you know social movement or sort of cultural change or shift that might be happening in the back in the back ground right um to that end um does the way young journalists college students um even in in some applications i guess high school areas do journalists need to be taught a, a little more or something a little different to maybe 
help bridge that gap so that they are comfortable? Because I, I saw that situation as something that could happen to any young reporter, right. even if they're not, you know, affiliated with a college. Right. You know, if you don't have a strong editorial background and, and know sort of where the standard is, it, it, it could happen. So, you know, when you look at that situation, how did you react to it or as an editor? Uh, what were you feeling when that was really rubbing? Yeah, my my first thought was uh, empathy for the students at Northwestern. I mean, because they didn't do anything wrong. They reported the whole situation correctly. Uh, they went about finding sources to quote in a proper manner using the school uh, phone book or whatever it was. They didn't do anything wrong. Uh, but then the firestorm started anyways. And what happened was, I mean, in my opinion, their apology went way too far. Um, if you wanted to issue maybe a paragraph to say, hey, listen, we realize uh, some people got offended or upset by the way this was covered. We're sorry. Um, that's just what happens when you cover news events sometimes. Uh, so they went a little bit too far with that. I think the thing is, though, I'm going to sound like the old 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 fogey here. <laughs> Things have changed, and a a big reason how and why is social media. You know, when I was taking journalism classes 35, 40 years ago, you, you went out, you reported, you 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 did your due diligence, you wrote the story as accurately as you could. Uh, again, trying to keep bias out of it. It goes off into whatever publication people read it. They might be talking about it with their friends. But they're not going to get right on some kind of platform two seconds after they've read it, or maybe they haven't even read it all the way through, and they're going to have a reaction. And a lot of times the reaction is going to be back on you, the writer, not on the event that you're writing about. It's just a new day and age, and I don't think we have all that figured out. I did go to, um, it was the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, Dan O'Shaughnessy, a sports writer for the Boston Globe was being inducted in the sports writer's wing a couple of years ago and his talk it was it was perfect uh they asked him how is covering sports different today than it was 20 years ago and he covers uh i think covers the new england patriots and he said this was 20 years ago i would go to the game write the game story on a sunday night submit it for monday's paper people would read it on monday and tuesday those that hated the story would write a letter so when the mail came on Wednesday, he goes, that's when I sucked. I didn't suck till the mail came on Wednesday. Now he's tweeting from the game, he's Instagramming, he's writing everything there, not just the game story but reaction. And he yeah. goes, now I suck before I leave the stadium because everything is so instant and it's so uh, now. And that's the difference. Uh, again, I don't know that we've uh, – quite figured that out. Uh, I think that the, the Northwestern students got caught up in all the social vitriolic talk, you know, about the way that they covered that event um, and then had to issue this long apology. That's why I say I felt empathy. I, I felt sorry for them. Um, it is great to have a discussion about journalism. Right, though. yeah, yeah. So that's what it led to. Did did the part – so for me, the, the part that seemed most uh, – confusing i guess was the the idea of pulling photos after they've been published mm -hmm. um when you look at sort of your experience <clears throat> and your experience in various newsrooms 
Is that really something that should ever be happening in terms of you've already you've already published it. It's right. a done deal. It happened. Right. Right. Um, maybe there's there's some reflection that can take place, but is right. pulling it ever the right right idea? No, I don't think so, because if you ran it in the first place, then you had a reason for running it in the first place. And I don't think that reason, reason should change. Again, though, it kind of goes back to this new age that we live in with social media and how many times you've seen somebody post something on Facebook or wherever, and then all of a sudden the negative reaction comes in and they pull it, and you can't find it any longer unless someone had taken a screenshot of it or something. Mm -hmm. So these youngsters at Northwestern are living in that world where things get pulled. You, you throw something out there, you see what the reaction is. Oh, boy, it's nasty. Let's pull <laughs> that off. So same thing. Here some photos that we ran. I mean, I think, you know, not trying to be in their shoes, this might have been some of the thinking. Yeah, let's get that photo out of there so nobody else can look at it and, you know, we see the negative reaction that they got. But no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, again, you made the, the judgment and the determination that that photo was going to be on your site initially, so it should stay there. Does it worry you at all when you see stories like this, or stories in general that are critical of decisions made inside newsrooms, that, um, that future decisions could be affected mm -hmm. by... It, you know, end the process thereby, be affected in the future. Does that worry you in terms of, you know, being able to stick to what's true for journalism? Yeah, absolutely, because especially uh, as you saw from the long apology that they wrote, uh, they said we will be doing things differently. We will not do that again. Mm -hmm. uh, we apologize to the folks that we hurt or whatever. Um, so I would submit that if the exact same scenario happened the next day at Northwestern, it would not have been covered probably the way that it should have. Well, maybe not the next day because it took a few days for all this to play out. But, you know, uh, you get my point that they would have changed it the way that they covered it. And at my very first statement about the whole thing is they didn't do anything wrong covering it the way that they covered it, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it would change your thought process, unfortunately. You have, uh, you have covered your share of election cycles. I'm curious um, if this most recent cycle felt... Uh, any different to you in terms of uh, the way the conversation, this was our first uh, local election, I guess you'd say, since uh, Donald Trump really was elected and, and really had a, a firm grap, uh, grasp on his uh, administration. So I'm curious, um, with the, the vitriol, as we've been talking about, mm -hmm. did this cycle feel any different or did it feel um, pretty similar to what we've seen in the past? Boy, um, that's a good one. It really didn't seem that different to me. And actually, it seemed, I mean, obviously, we had two mayor candidates in Geneva who are good friends and have been friends for a long time. Both decided not to go down any nasty roads. Mm -hmm. um, it was funny. We had both of them in for, you know, editorial endorsement interviews. And, and I know you met with them with your yep. crew here as well. And they both said separately, you're going to find that we don't think differently on a lot of issues for Geneva. Um, you know, there's there's the, the the differences between them were a little bit more in their background and maybe some of the political experience that one had and one didn't. But they basically uh, felt the same things were needed uh, to keep Geneva moving along the path that it's moving on. So they it was a very uh, civil mayoral campaign. Um, some things always come up. I always say politics is a contact sport. And up here, a lot even less so than like in the deep south where things yeah. can really get nasty. 
Um, so I, I think it was. It seemed to be fairly civil. Um, even not not just the mayoral candidates, but even the city councilor candidates themselves, Democrats and Republicans, a lot of them said a lot of the same things, um, whether that was you know planned or not. But um, there wasn't a lot of difference in the things that they were looking at for Geneva. So no, it did not seem. It didn't seem particularly nasty. It didn't seem out of bounds. Um, it didn't seem particularly unique, to mm-hmm. tell you the truth, from my perspective. And obviously, you, you mentioned uh, the editorial endorsements. That's something that, that it seems to be getting more discussion time now than has in the past. A staple of, of you know, journalism and, and news, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you've openly defended them. Um, and I think a lot, there's a lot of folks who read newspapers who appreciate that. Um, walk us through what your thought process is on that, because I know I see it on social all the time. Um, any newspaper, if they, yeah. they endorse candidates, <clears throat> firestorm erupts shortly thereafter on social. Yeah. Um, I guess, again, I'm old school. I've been doing this for a long time, and I still like to think that newspapers play the same role that they did 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, my feeling with endorsements is that people are so busy these days. Our readers are so busy these days. They've got to take the kids to soccer practice. They've got their jobs. They've got to do dinner, um, and you know, and they have their own jobs to do. Our job is to, and yours to, as well in the media here, Josh, is to uh, sit down with the candidates. We can make that kind of time. We can ask them questions that the uh, common folks necessarily can't necessarily. Uh, it's a chance to get to know them a little bit, especially when we sit down with it in an editorial um, interview type situation. And I just think that it's it's part of the newspaper's responsibility to you – know, one thing we say is endorsements are not predictions. Um, we're not predicting who's going to win. We're not going to say, you have to vote for so-and-so. We're saying after we've sat down with these folks and asked all the questions that we wanted to ask, here's who we lean toward leading our city, leading our state, leading whatever municipality down a road that we think this is the best opportunity to go down the road that we want to go down. Um, If you disagree, you know, that is terrific. No problem at all. Uh, But again, it gets a little nasty with people that disagree, (laughs) and I understand that. That's kind of how things are these days. Um, So... We've defended them. You know, a lot of newspapers are getting away from endorsements. Uh, it's you know, it's kind of like what I was talking about before when you upset one side and you upset the other, and they both cancel their subscription. Well, you know, you upset this person because you didn't endorse his friend, and this person because you didn't. Not even party lines we're talking about now, and they both cancel their subscription. You know, again, yeah. uh, we don't want that to happen, and it's not the idea is that we get people so riled up that they're going to cancel the subscription. It's our idea is that uh, we've, again, uh, gone through, answered, got some questions answered, and uh, made a calm, rational decision on, on who we think can lead the city in the right direction. When you look ahead to 2020, what are your expectations um, for not just local coverage of, obviously, what will be state and federal races, but um, what you expect the tone of that to be? Uh, given the circumstances over the next, because now we, we already feel, and I was saying this leading up to this this past election, yeah. um, it felt like we were already in the middle of the race in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to be getting longer and longer and longer, but now we're, we're going to be in the home stretch. What are your expectations moving through 2020? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, with the local elections that we just went through, there wasn't a lot of Donald Trump talk. You know, there was a little bit, but not a lot. I think with the next cycle, because we're going to have state, we're going to have senators, assemblymen, and um, congressmen, uh, there will be more because they're going to be, you know, those positions are tied more into Albany and into Washington. And whenever, as we see these days, whenever Trump is part of the conversation, uh, it can get nasty on both sides. And I do, because we'll be, you know, the presidential election along with those other uh, federal races. I, you know, um, I imagine it'll be a little bit more heated even around here than f from what we just saw with the local elections. And I, you know, after the last presidential election, I even said, and this has nothing to do pro or against Donald Trump or anything like that, but just the way he was talking about the media um, to his followers, you know, I told our folks at work, we're going to start hearing this kind of, it's going to trickle down to us. Yeah. Now, he's talking more about the national media, usually. Uh, but it has trickled down to us, and, you know, we'll get a phone call again from a reader. Well, uh, you guys hate Donald Trump, so cancel my subscription. Well, we never said that we hate Donald Trump, you know. Um, so it does trickle down. It affects almost all layers of not just our business, but a lot of businesses. Um, so I do expect that it'll be uh, excitable around here uh, next year. <laughs> it does seem like uh, a lot of local journalists are trying to distance themselves from any connection at all to these sort of big national federal uh, stories that involve the president and, and that sort of really heated debate. I, is that sort of where local journalism has to really plant its roots and make sure that it is trying to, as much as possible, stay local and really be local in the process? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. Um, but part of it goes back to the fact that we are not, our reporters are not uh, as well versed. I mean, they're not in the White House. They're not right. going to press conferences. Um, if you want to talk about the mayor of Geneva, I'd like to say that, you know, we have a fair idea uh, of, of where the mayor of Geneva should stand on things, or at least we can make some determinations. But no, I mean, we don't have that expertise, and so we don't need to be involved in it. Uh, what we could do is a story from local folks and what they think of Donald Trump or whoever happens to be running on the Democratic side. Uh, yeah, we can write a story about their opinions, uh, but I, we don't need to be reporting that kind of stuff. We're a local paper, and it actually kind of goes back to city council. Um, and again, maybe why you know we didn't see the Donald Trump thing come up in city council races that much is because it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter. You're talking about taxes in Geneva and how to lower taxes. It really has nothing to do with who's in the White House. Right. And so, yeah, you can separate those two things. And, you know, we call ourselves a community newspaper because we're involved in the community and we cover the community. Um, what happens in Washington, while it affects the community a bit, uh, is not where, you know, where everything lies so my last question for you where can folks find that book it's on amazon right it's on amazon.com yeah just okay. go there and do a search for cotillo c-u-t-i-l-l-o it'll be the first thing that comes up you can order it there you can order it uh ideapress.com is the publisher it's on their website or folks can get in touch with me at the finger lakes times and i will get them a copy of it signed too if they would like it Ooh, yeah. signed also yeah Maybe they just wanted to put it up on their wall so they can throw darts at it. I don't know. <laughs> of course, they'll be throwing darts at my father, which wouldn't be a very pleasant thing to do. So, <laughs> Mike, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming. Thank in. you, Josh. Appreciate it.
Before we go, a quick reminder that new episodes are released every week on FingerLakes1.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. You can visit InsideTheFLX.com for past episodes or to leave us a voice message. You can also drop us a line by emailing InsideTheFLX at FingerLakes1.com. Subscribe to the show wherever you are listening and become a Patreon supporter if you can. Visit www.patreon.com slash FL1 to learn more. Links to all of those things are available in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.